Hi, welcome to the SNC Critical Insights podcast series. I'm Andy Dietrich. This is a podcast about the scary situation of being a public company director in the middle of a crisis. It can be intimidating enough to be a director of a healthy company, but when a company faces a financial crisis, being a director can be downright frightening. But it doesn't need to be. With me today is Melissa Sawyer, who's the head of the M&A group at Sullivan and Cromwell. I'm Andy Dieterich. I'm a restructuring lawyer. And we'd like to talk to you about how our two disciplines combine in a way that can keep directors safe, even in the middle of the worst kind of corporate storms. Andy, I keep hearing that directors have different fiduciary duties when corporations enter this scary thing called the zone of insolvency. What are people talking about, and is that a real thing? Well, there used to be something called the zone of insolvency. There were doctrines under many state laws. U.S. corporate law is special in this regard. In many countries around the world, directors face serious consequences if the firm continues to operate while insolvent. In England, they can be sued personally for creditor losses for trading while insolvent. In Germany and Switzerland, trading while insolvent can be a crime. In the U.S., we don't send directors to jail. But for a long time, there was a sense that directors of insolvent corporations had special duties to creditors. And this continues to be the case outside of the United States, where when a company started to become potentially insolvent, directors were told by lawyers that they might have duties that run not to the company and not to stockholders, but duties that run to creditors. One version of this was called the trust fund doctrine, and it said that a company that is insolvent becomes a trust fund for the benefit of creditors, and the directors need to act as trustees. But I think as people familiar with modern Delaware corporate law know, the trust fund doctrine was overruled by the Delaware Supreme Court in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, there's very clear case law from a case called Giwala that says that directors in this so-called zone of insolvency do not have duties to creditors. And what duties do they have, Melissa? They have duties to the corporation and its shareholders. New duties or the same duties? The same duties they've always had. Exactly. We tell directors in the zone of insolvency or in insolvency or in whatever zone they might happen to be in that their duties are absolutely the same. The duties of loyalty, the duty of good faith, the duty of care. So I think the tricky questions come up when directors are trying to balance their duties to the corporation against duties to shareholders and thinking about circumstances where preserving a corporation's liquidity could benefit shareholders if they place a big bet that works out well, but could really be for the detriment of the creditors if things go further south. And I think that's where the tension lies in thinking about directors' duties in these contexts. That's right. Directors, we often say fiduciary duties for a director is like a field. The field has fences. But you can determine where you want to stand in the field. You just can't be on the other side of any of the fences. And the field in Delaware is very broad. Delaware corporate law is intentionally designed to give directors acting in good faith a broad amount of discretion on what they want to do. But the protections that you hear about for directors, the business judgment rule chiefly in Delaware, applies whether you're solvent, whether you might be solvent, or whether you're insolvent. And you can make judgments in the best interest of the corporation in those circumstances. So Andy, let's put this into practice with a hypothetical. Okay. Take a company that is quickly running through its liquidity and cash 
but has a chance of pulling off a rescue sale. Sounds familiar. The sale process is going to take about three months, and it's highly uncertain. If that process succeeds, creditors are going to be paid in full, and stockholders will get a modest recovery. If the sale process fails, the company is going to have to file for Chapter 11. Mm -hmm. The board has been told that in the Chapter 11, three months from now, the marginal creditor is going to recover 50 cents on the dollar. But if the company gives up on the notion of conducting a sale process today and files for Chapter 11 immediately, the marginal creditor is going to recover 80 cents. What should the board do? This is not an unusual hypothetical, but the answer is the board is probably safe with either choice, so long as it's informed, conflicts are disclosed, a majority of the directors are disinterested, and the decision is made in good faith. It becomes a classic business judgment rule question. There's a wonderful case that gets into similar issues in Delaware, the Quadrant case, which came after Giwala. And Quadrant stands for a proposition that the board of directors can make judgments about which stockholders or creditors it favors. Boards can pick winners and losers. They almost have to pick winners and losers by virtue of being a board of directors in a difficult circumstance, and the courts would generally respect their choice. So in our hypothetical, where a prompt filing, the creditors would recover 80 cents, but there's a possibility of an M&A transaction that if it doesn't close, the creditors will get 50 cents, losing 30 cents. And if it does close, the creditors will be paid in full and the stockholders will get a recovery. And that hypothetical, there's no right or wrong answer under Delaware law. The right answer is just a process. The process is the answer. And as long as the board follows a proper process, it will be protected even if it reaches the wrong decision in retrospect. So I think you're saying that the percentages or the probabilities don't matter so much as a sort of strict matter of Delaware law, but what really matters is if the directors are thoughtful and careful about how they analyze the situation. But what if the directors themselves are stockholders? Is that a conflict of interest that the Delaware courts would take into account? Delaware law has said no on that question repeatedly. Now, I cautiously, personally, I advise directors to try to make the decision as if they didn't own stock and think about the best interests of the enterprise. But stock ownership does not deprive the directors of the benefit of the business judgment rule or really alter the process to follow in any meaningful way. Practically, however, of course, directors are never really wise to gamble everything on one strategy. And that's why our hypothetical is unrealistic. For example, none of our clients would pursue a 10% chance at a rescue merger without also doing contingency planning work for an organized Chapter 11 in parallel. The normal board materials for these situations, the financial distress of a major corporation, usually include three, four, five different strategic alternatives being pursued in parallel, with a conventional Chapter 11 filing at the bottom of the page as a potentiality only if other work streams are not successful and the company simply runs out of time. Okay, so let's talk about another hypothetical, which takes me a little bit out of my comfort zone because it's not an M&A hypothetical per se. But take a company that is considering raising liquidity by issuing secured debt, and the issuance is going to dramatically decrease the value of the unsecured bonds. The new secured lenders will have collateral, and they'll be fine no matter what. And the equity is happy because they just want the company to survive a little bit longer, and this added liquidity is going to help with that. But the unsecured creditors, who might be the economic owners of the company, or I think you call them the fulcrum, 
they could be harmed by putting this new debt ahead of them, and they would prefer that the company just file for Chapter 11 and equitize the unsecured bonds. So how should the directors think about that sort of decision? These are hard decisions because the director is going to be criticized regardless. This is where Giwala is so helpful. The first proposition is there's no duty to the creditors themselves. The unsecured creditors can write all the nasty letters to the board they want, but ultimately they hold merely contractual claims against the company. The directors have a duty to the company. Now, from a risk perspective, if the company is not successful and eventually files for Chapter 11, the unsecured creditors will stand in the shoes of the company, potentially, and be able to enforce duties derivatively. And it might be that if the company files after taking this, what we call priming financing, taking the priming financing in a way that is detrimental to the unsecured creditors, the directors might face a fiduciary duty action brought by the estate in bankruptcy or brought by the unsecured creditors. But that action will still have to overcome the business judgment rule. It will still have to overcome the basic principles of Delaware law and the duties the directors owe are the same duties. And so the question in some way is almost always the same question. Were the directors informed? Were they disinterested? Did they believe the financing was in the best interest of the company? If so, they're protected by the business judgment rule. My own sense is that given the cost and disruption of Chapter 11 to a business, directors can almost always justify most actions taken in good faith to avoid bankruptcy, even if some specific creditors end up harmed or end up benefiting if a bankruptcy had been filed earlier. So sticking with this theme of corporate governance in this context, one of the things that I find interesting is that there are on occasion special experts brought in to be directors in this restructuring context. I think you call them restructuring directors. What's their role, and does that change any of this duties landscape that we've been talking about? This is one of the most interesting areas of restructuring practice, I think, for people who aren't restructuring lawyers. In out-of-court M&A practice, your world, you see special committees brought in in conflict situations. And the rules for establishing and getting the benefit of a proper special committee are fairly conventional and regimented and strict. In restructuring, it's less strict. But independent directors are often brought into restructuring for two primary reasons. One is that sometimes the current board doesn't have restructuring experience among the directors on the board. And adding restructuring experience at a director level can be helpful in helping the directors you know, meet really their first duty as being directors of being informed about the situation and having sufficient expertise. But the second reason is independent directors can be brought in with a mandate to help negotiate conflict of interest matters and to reach decisions with respect to effectively settlements and compromises. So you see this in reorganizations where for a private equity portfolio company, for example, if the company might have claims against the sponsor, you see independent directors brought in to assist the board in negotiations with the sponsor. So when they get brought in, do the incumbent directors get to check out a little bit? Are they entitled to rely on the expertise of these restructuring directors? How does that work? Well, there certainly are matters where the restructuring director is going to take the lead, such as the negotiation of a conflicted settlement with a financial sponsor. But the full board is not really excused from their duty to show up for work and make an informed decision just because they happen to appoint a restructuring director. In fact, our practice has been not to over-delegate to independent restructuring directors, but to make sure that the board actually understands, one, what's going on, and that the board continues to be in control of the restructuring. 
So Andy, we've been talking a lot about director duties. And in the M&A context, we talk about it a lot because directors often get sued. But in the bankruptcy context, is there really a lot of litigation? I mean, why do we worry about director duties issues so much? Well, that's a great question. So bankruptcy litigation about fiduciary duties and process issues is different than regular way or non-bankruptcy litigation. In non-bankruptcy scenarios, like an M&A transaction, the transaction closes. It's done. And then there's a litigation. I mean, sometimes there's litigation challenging a transaction. But fiduciary duty litigation is usually something that happens after a deal has been announced and oftentimes after a deal is closed. In bankruptcy, process litigation is much more related to can you get the deal done? Can you get the plan confirmed? And process mistakes can harm the ability of the debtor team to get a deal across the line in court. Now, if you have enough leverage and you have enough other things in favor of a transaction, sometimes you can overcome process flaws. But process flaws are never helpful to get a deal approved. And you want to avoid them if you can. Doesn't everybody just get released at the end of a bankruptcy case? Well, that's a sometimes. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Releases used to be commonplace. They still are in private equity portfolio cases where only financial creditors are impaired, for example. If you have a pre-pack or a pre-arranged case and you're paying all most of the creditors except for the creditors that are agreeing, and those creditors are acquiring the equity of the company from a financial sponsor, it's very easy and common for those effectively buyers of the company through the credit to agree with the seller of the company, the private equity company, that the directors of the private equity company on the board should get released. It's a business deal between the creditors and the private equity sponsor. This is a simple picture of the world, however, because that's not really all bankruptcy. In cases with diverse creditors, cases with creditor committees, public company cases, fiduciary litigation, fiduciary duty litigation specifically, is more often surviving today the effectiveness of the plan of reorganization. Toys, Sears, both at substantial litigation tales that are still continuing. So I don't think in a big bankruptcy case in 2021, a lawyer can tell the board, don't worry, you'll be released. The much better approach is to do the work to eliminate claims against directors on the merits and then still seek a release. If you get the release, great. If you don't get the release, everything will still be okay. This makes the release easier to get. It gives creditors or dissenters less leverage against the board and the debtor team. And it allows the transaction to still proceed successfully, even if for some reason the release isn't ultimately available. So Andy, it sounds like in the restructuring context, a lot of the same tools and techniques that we would use for, say, an M&A deal are equally applicable, making sure that you keep a good record of the board's deliberations, making sure that the directors are fully informed and not conflicted. So what are people so afraid of? So what are people afraid of? They're afraid of the unknown. The thing about bankruptcy for a public board of directors is hopefully it's most of their first time going through it. And the uncertainty and the, the uniqueness of bankruptcy, the fact you have creditors that are complaining and are going to suffer losses, tends to create a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of worry. But Delaware law recognizes that. Bankruptcy law recognizes that. Our corporate laws recognize it. And these provisions that have created protections for directors making difficult decisions out of bankruptcy are even more important for directors that are making difficult decisions in bankruptcy, which is why we don't believe in a zone of insolvency. We believe in a zone of safety, a place where the law will protect a director. The law will have your back 
if you follow appropriate procedures and are making decisions in good faith. And it needs to, because a company on the precipice of a potential Chapter 11 filing, a company in Chapter 11, deciding what it's going to do, the liability, the potential damage, the exposure that creates in so many different directions. And there's two fundamental legal policies in that circumstance. First is that the right people to make the decision on what to do is not the judge, or not the creditors, or not the stockholders, not the owners, our management and the board of directors. And the second fundamental decision is that because the law puts them in that situation, they need to be protected. And they will be protected as long as they follow an appropriate process consistent with the way fiduciary duties are interpreted under the general laws of the state where their company is incorporated. And they put themselves in a position assisted by advisors to make informed decisions in good faith. Thanks for listening. This has been SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, check us out on www.sulcrom.com.